0: We are in a short little four-week series in the book of Jonah. It's one of my uh, favorite books in all of uh, Scripture. I'm going to start in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Tricked you. Um, Jonah 1, 17, all the way through chapter 2. It says, "...and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights." Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And I have vowed I will pay. And what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So several months ago, a gentleman in our faith family came up to me, uh, and said, Colton, there is a group of us that want to transform your backyard. And my first, my first thought was, like, dude, have you seen our backyard? So I actually have a picture. Um, yeah, it's kind of blurry, and that kind of communicates the despair that that place was. Uh, but it was bad. It was nothing but dirt and weeds. It had a sidewalk that went through the middle for some reason, um, there was a concrete slab of stairs that just went directly to the wall. I'm assuming there used to be a door there, but there wasn't a door, so it just became known as the stairs to nowhere. Um, but our backyard was something that Katie and I were, were pretty ashamed about. We were embarrassed about it. Uh, I remember one time Katie was hosting worship practice, and all the worship team members were, were over, and so one worship team member brought their kids over. And about halfway through the night, one of their kids, about 10-year-old boy, uh, came running into the house with a knife and was like, "Mom, look what I found in the backyard." Apparently, he just started digging and found a kitchen knife in our yard. Um, and so, our yard was was bad, right? Uh, and to be clear, it's not that this was like an unfortunate thing for us. Like this was our fault. Like we we took no effort in taking care of our backyard. It wasn't like I was back there with Roundup and a rake, like just doing the best with what I had. No, we were awful homeowner- homeowners. We deserved what we had, right? And so my second thought was, okay, he said, okay, I wanna, we want to transform your backyard. And I was like, why? Do you know who we are? Like, we're, we're just going to ruin it anyway. We deserved exactly what we had. But this gentleman and many others insisted. And so many of you came over and you, you helped pour concrete. You dug holes for trees. You laid patio stones in in the heat. And you didn't do that out of any obligation that you had to us. Like, I wasn't paying you. I didn't save you or a child from drowning at one point. So you were no, under no obligation to do that. But when we got to the finish line and I looked around, um, the gift that God had given us was just unbelievable. Um, we were no longer ashamed to invite people over to our house and like some kind of fear that they would see our yard. Last Sunday, we, we had a book release party uh, for my wife, Katie. She just wrote a book about Gen Z and missions. And, and I looked around. And so I actually have a picture of the updated yard so you can see. So this was last week. And as I looked around, um, I was just, I was filled with two emotions. The first one was gratitude. I was just so thankful for the gift. Uh, I was thankful for you too, But I was thankful for the gift that God had given. And then the second emotion I felt was kind of a phrase um, was, because I think like most people I struggle with pride, like all of us in here, and I just kept thinking, okay, how do I pay back everyone who helped bring about the unbelievable gift? How do I honor them? And and I felt like God just gave me this phrase, um, you want to honor the giver, enjoy the gift, right? To enjoy the gift. And and as I've been reflecting on our backyard, I I just thought this is such a picture of grace. You you can take that picture down now. But this is just such a picture of grace because what is grace? Okay, Grace is when an undeserving person receives from an unobligated giver an unbelievable gift. So grace is when an undeserving person receives from an unobligated giver an unbelievable gift. And the response in that person, person is gratitude. Enjoy. That's where we're at in the book of Jonah, okay? Our running prophet from chapter one has turned into a praying prophet in chapter two. In chapter two, Jonah is recounting his experience from boat to water to fish. Uh, to fish. And if you want a phrase to anchor our time together this morning, it's the idea of distress to deliverance. That's what we see here. We see Jonah go from distress to Deliverance is the theme of Jonah chapter 2, but it's also the theme of our lives that God will take each of us on a journey from distress to deliverance. It's called grace, and the response is gratitude and joy. So, first, we see that Jonah is completely undeserving. The situation he's in now, he deserves it. He had run from God, his running was rebellion from God. Like, make no mistake about it. He knew what he was doing. He was rebelling against God. He had sinned against God. And you see him recount his distress in the midst of his sin throughout his prayer. In in verse uh, 2, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. Sheol was the Hebrew word for the realm of the dead, right? So he's saying, out of the belly of the realm of of the dead, I cried. Verse five, he says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds, think about this picture, right? He's drowning. Weeds were wrapped around about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So in the Hebrew mind, the sea was a picture of chaos and darkness and evil. Hebrews would not go into the sea. They're, they didn't swim, okay? And here is Jonah. He's been hurled into the sea, and he's literally drowning. He's at death's doorstop. Sheol, the the realm of the dead, is about to swallow him up. And in the midst of all of that, he recognizes that this is happening because of God. It's interesting. He recognizes that God is the one that has put him there, that the punishment he is suffering because of his rebellion from God that God has put him in this place. Verse three, he says, for you cast me into the deep. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surround me. All your waves and your billows pass over me. So Jonah doesn't think this is coincidence that this is happening to him. It's not woe is me here. He knows that this is providence. This is God. And by the way, this is consistent with the rest of your Bible. This idea that there is punishment for sin is consistent with the rest of your Bible. Romans says there's no one who seeks God. No, not one. Romans 3 says all have fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 59 tells us that our sins have separated us from God. Isaiah 59 too. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So not only here are we separated from God, but Romans 6 tells us that the wages of those sins is death. So humanity's rebellion against God, and hear this, and this is where Jonah is, humanity's rebellion against God will always be met with the wrath of God. And that's a scary thought that the penalty that you and I face in the midst of our rebellion, what we deserve is death and separation from God because our God is a God of justice. He's a God of justice and a just God must punish all sin. So when God comes to you and I as a good judge, what will he inevitably say to every single one of us? Guilty, guilty. And that's the problem. Every man and woman is guilty before God. So here's the question. Okay, how can God express his justice to us as sinners without condemning every single person in the world? (laughs) In other words, how can God love us when God's justice requires condemning us? Does that make sense? It's the fundamental problem in the entire universe. And most people in our culture aren't losing sleep on how it's possible for God to both be just and loving towards sinners at the same time. Most people are accusing God saying, okay, how can you even punish sinners, right? How how can you let good people go to hell? The question the Bible asks is the exact opposite. It's, God, how can you be just and let guilty sinners into heaven, okay? That's the question the Bible asks. How do you balance these two things. How are these things solved? We'll come back to that. But here we have Jonah. He's drowning. God has cast him into the deep because of his sin. So he's undeserving. Like, he does not deserve to be rescued in any way. He has put himself there, and God has cast him there. Now, God is also unobligated to save him. God's not obligated to save him, right? God does not owe Jonah anything. God does not need Jonah to complete his mission, to bring repentance in Nineveh. God can send anybody he wants. He's not dependent on Jonah in any way. But here is the wonderful thing, an amazing and glorious thing about our just and unobligated God. When we call out to him in the midst of our distress, I don't know what that looks like for you, in the midst of our distress, he will never turn his face away. He will never turn his face away. In fact, he doesn't just fix it from the outside, but in the midst of that distress, he meets us us there. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and then what does it say? And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. The roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. So where Jonah once ran from the presence of God, he is now moving towards the presence of God. And so here's a question, okay? Just thinking about this week. If God is a just God who must punish all sin, right? If that's what is required of him, ask God. And if scripture is true and telling me that I am guilty of sin and the result of that sin is death, then what's the point? What's the point? Like for Jonah, if the result of his sin is undoubtedly death, then why does he even call out to God? What's the point of even asking for help? If, if my, the result of my sin is death, then why even try? Why even call out? to God. And you, when you are in distress, when you find sin to be empty, when your relationships are broken, when life is falling apart, when you're in desperate need, what's the point for you? Why do you call out to God? Why does he do that? Well, twice in his prayer in Jonah chapter 2, he mentions something very specific. It says he looks towards the temple. He looks towards the temple. Verse 4, he says, I am driven from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So we have to ask the question, what's so important about the temple? Why is he thinking about a building while he's drowning? Well, for Jonah and the rest of the Jewish people, The center of the world was the nation of Israel. And the center of Israel was Jerusalem. Ezekiel 5.5 says, Thus says the Lord, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And in the center of Jerusalem was the temple. And at the center of the temple was a room called the Holy of Holies. Okay, and the Holy of Holies, it was a picture of where God dwelt, of where God was present that in the holy of holies, God is there. And in the center of that room was a box. And within that box was the law of God, the commandments of God. And the picture was, if you could keep the commandments of God, if you could fully follow the law of God, then you could enter that room. You could be in the holy of holies. You could enjoy the presence of God. But the problem was, nobody could do it. Nobody could keep God's law. As Romans says, the law reveals our sin before God because we all fall short of the glory of God. So no one could enter that room because no one is holy as God is holy. Your sin, my sin, their sin has separated us from God. But God had commanded his people that on a specific day each year that they were to make a sacrifice, okay? So a priest would take the blood of an innocent lamb kill it and drain its blood, and he would take that blood and he would approach that box that was in the center of that room. And on the top of the box was a lid. It was called the mercy seat, the hilasterion, right? And the priest would take the blood of that lamb and he would cover the mercy seat with it once a year. And it was a picture that I cannot keep God's law. I am unholy before a holy God. And because of this, I cannot enjoy the presence of God. But when God looks at the mercy seat, he doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see the law that I cannot keep, but rather he sees the blood of someone innocent covering my sin. And because of that, I can now enjoy the presence of God. Because in that moment, God's wrath is appeased. Romans three twenty-three through 25, for all have sinned and fall short of, of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a what? As a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation it means to appease the wrath of God that God is satisfied in the sacrifice. So Jonah looks to the temple. He looks to the temple. Because though Jesus has not come yet, he knows that a sacrifice is coming on his behalf. He he looks towards the, the holiness of God, the justice of God being satisfied in an innocent sacrifice. So let's ask the question that we asked earlier. God, how can you be both just and also let guilty sinners into heaven? How can you be both just and loving? It's possible because a perfect sacrifice has satisfied the wrath of God. And the glorious thing about it is that though God was unobligated to rescue us, he came himself to be that sacrifice. He came himself. Jesus, fully God, came from heaven and put on flesh and willingly died on a cross to be a propitiation for us. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And here's what's utterly unique about him. Utterly unique. His life displayed the righteousness of God, fully man, like us, yet fully God, divine, like God. In both his humanity and his deity, he was without sin. He never rebelled against God, which means as a human, he was innocent before God. He did not deserve death, yet he died. And his death satisfied the justice of God, that he died in our place, that Corinthians says we were bought with a price. He had no sin for which he deserved death, yet he chose to take our place. Enduring the judgment that we deserve. And at the cross, God expressed his judgment on sin. While at the same time, on the cross, God showed his love for you and I. So Jesus, fully human and divine, endured the judgment due sin, and at the cross, God enabled salvation for sinners, which means that this just God does not give us what justice deserves when we turn to him in faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God that we did not save ourselves, that we did not make ourselves righteous. The Bible says that we were dead in our sins, just like Jonah. And we cannot bring ourselves back to life. Only the spirit of God can do that. We cannot work our way to salvation. We'll never do enough good deeds to earn our place in God's kingdom, but it takes an act of God to rescue us and save us. And that's exactly what happens with Jonah. So if you have, if you have called out to God in faith, in your distress, then you need to know, if you've called out in faith, said, God, I believe that Jesus was fully God, fully man. I believe that he lived a sinless life. I believe that he died and was dead for three days. And I believe that he rose from the grave. And I believe that your spirit is within me. If you believe that, then you need to know that when God looks at you, he does not see the law you haven't kept. He does not see your sin. He sees the blood of someone innocent covering you he sees Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel. <laughs> now, there are three Hebrew words in this, in the last three verses that I think are incredible. Um, and they're really helpful to understand what's happening here in Jonah 2. So I, I think in life, when suffering hits, we either can continue in our running from God for fear of how God might receive us. Like, I, I don't know if your parents were like mine, like, did any of you ever get in trouble as kids? Cool. Okay, so, um, you know, like, when you got in trouble, say you broke something, and your mom or dad was like, um, hey, get over here, right? What did you expect them to do when you came over there? Whip you. Yeah, you, you expected some kind of punishment, right? Like Like, okay. And so what happens over time is sometimes you're afraid to come to mom or dad, right? because you're afraid of the whooping. Whatever metal, stick, whatever that was. Um, But I think sometimes we think of God like that. We disobey, we sin against God, and then we're afraid to return to him because we're afraid of the punishment. That's not what we see in our father, that when we call out to him, he receives us in love. He receives us in great. And so Jonah, he doesn't continue in his running right? He doesn't continue in his running. When he realizes his sin, and when he realizes what's happening, the death and despair that his sin resulted in, he stops running and he calls out to God. And so the question is, why? Why does he call out to God? Why is he so sure that God will receive him in love? Verse 7, he says, when my life was fainting away, he says, I remembered the Lord. Anytime you see the Lord in all capital letters, that is God's name, Yahweh. Jonah, in a moment, remembers who his God is, that there is an intimacy between him and God. He remembers that he has a covenant with God. That's why he says in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. That phrase, steadfast love, is the word chesed, right? It means Loyal love—you you can't use the word "hassed" like you would use our word love. You, you would never say I hased the Dallas Cowboys, right? It just doesn't. You would never say, bro, I hased that shirt, right? You would just—you would never say that because Hassed is love that binds itself and says, I will not never let you go. The closest thing we have to it is marriage. That when you get married, you bind yourself to someone. You bind yourself. You say, for better or worse. Sickness and in health, whether we're rich or we're dirt poor, it doesn't matter the situation. I'm not going anywhere. That we make a covenant that we will have chesed with one another. Loyal love. And that's what Yahweh has with Jonah. And in his distress, he remembers God's loyal love to him. That's why he looks at the temple. That he knows God has made a covenant with him and that God will make a way to forgive his sins. And so Jonah, he says here, he says those who pursue idols forsake that loyal love. That's interesting. So so idols in the Old Testament would be something like stone or gold or something physical and it's an idol because you're trying to replace God with something that is deaf and mute. So that idol, it can't hear you and it can't speak to you. But today there aren't a lot of people running around worshipping gold and stone. There are some, but not everyone. But what the enemy does today is a lot more sneaky with idols. What the enemy does today is he takes a good thing and he positions that good thing in our lives to be a replacement for God, that that thing would give us meaning and purpose, that we would look to that thing that, to give us something that only God can give. And so that good thing becomes a bad thing. This can be things like money, sex, status, friendships, career, and those idols... They always, always overpromise and under underdeliver. They overpromise and under deliver. They promise pleasure, but they leave us depressed. They promise fulfillment, but they leave us empty. So he says, those who pay regard to those vain idols, they forsake their hope for steadfast love. Here's what he's saying: those who pursue idols forsake the satisfying love of God and settle for something lesser that cannot satisfy. And then he says in verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. And he says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And if you'll notice, at least in the ESV, Salvation is capitalized, which tells us that that's a name. That is a name. Salvation, in verse 9, is a name. And it's the name, Yeshua. Does anybody know what the name Yeshua means? It's the name Jesus. It's where we get the name Jesus from. It's a reminder here. Salvation can only come from Jesus. That salvation, Jesus, fully man, fully God, Yahweh. And so for us, God has made a new covenant with us. Jonah looks to his covenant that God made with Abraham. But God has made a new covenant with us. And so when you're in distress, when life falls apart, who are you going to run to? Where are you, to run to? are you going to run to? Are you going to run to vain idols that over-promise and under-deliver? Are you going to run to a God who has literally put on flesh and died for you? Hebrews 10, 14 through 23. Just listen to this. It says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering Sin and he says in verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, you know, when uh, the day of atonement, that once a year when they would uh, cover the blood with the mercy seat, the priest would wrap a rope around the priest's leg just in case uh, God struck that guy down because he wasn't holy, right? Because you, you, they were afraid to enter the presence of God. <clears throat> and so they would have a rope just in case the dude died. But he says, therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through the flesh, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water." Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And then he says, for he who promised is faithful. He has been making a promise all throughout Scripture. Someone is coming to redeem. Someone is coming to rescue. And he, is, he was faithful to give that promise. What an unbelievable gift. The grace of God. So let me say that again. Grace is when an undeserving person, receives from an unobligated giver an unbelievable gift that we were all undeserving. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. And God is unobligated to rescue us. He's unobligated. But the gift that he has given us in Jesus Christ, the redemption of our souls, that he has bought us with the price, and he has placed the Holy Spirit within us, what an unbelievable gift. And the only response that makes sense to this is gratitude and joy. It's worship. Gratitude and joy. So, do you want to honor the giver? (laughs) You want to honor the giver for the gift of grace? How do you do that? How do you honor God for such a gift? You enjoy the gift. You enjoy Jesus Christ because there is nothing and there is no one better. It's called worship. So that's what we're going to do in these next few moments, that we would just worship Christ, his death and resurrection, and that the Holy Spirit within us would stir our affection for his name's glory, would bring us healing, would bring us hope, would bring us joy, and that we would leave this place transformed with an understanding that we don't belong to this world, but we belong to the kingdom of God because Christ has placed us there. He's bought us. Oh, <laughs>